Hi, thanks for checking out this message from our River Valley Church family here in Boise, Idaho. We hope that it encourages and inspires you. For more messages, be sure to check out our other podcasts. For more content from River Valley, go to our website, rivervalleyboise.com. Enjoy this message. Well, good morning, River Valley. How's everybody doing this morning? That's awesome. I like that. Well, yeah, Tim, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come and do this. Uh, this may feel a little different to you over the next uh, few weeks. We're going to talk a lot about what's happening in our culture and our world. Uh, there are moments of this that are going to be intensely practical for you and how to navigate the mental health crisis, because that is actually the title of this series, these next three weeks. It's about how you personally have to navigate the world that we're living in today, uh, which is producing a lot of difficulty for people, but it's also hopefully going to equip you with many things uh, in your life to be able to assist others. One of the most important things that uh, we can do is to be able to look around us and be able to see the space that people are living in and know how to move into that space with them. Uh, there's a lot of questions about mental health, a lot of questions about the increases in it. It's been around for a long time. Anybody read the scriptures? Yeah, plenty of people suffered in the scriptures with things like this. And yet today, the question we would want to maybe ask is like, is, is it increasing? Of course it's increasing. What I'm not going to do for you is equip you with statistics. I'm not going to sit up here and bore you with statistics the next three weeks. If you're living in our world, you know what's going on. If you want statistics, come email me, come talk to me later, but that is not what we're going to do. Uh, I'm actually going to speak to it directly and help you learn how to navigate it, is my hope, with God's guidance and his wisdom. Um, little disclaimer on what it's like listening to me communicate. We have any fans of amusement parks in here? Yeah. Roller coasters? Yeah. Particularly wooden ones? Okay, so just a little, here's the thing you get to avoid listening to me speak. You don't have to stand in any long lines. There's no, there's no one lining up. But what it will feel like is you'll like be approaching the station and, you know, walking in and you're like, a, you know, a little anticipation, maybe apprehension of what this is going to be like. And then eventually you get up there and you sit down in, in the car and you're breathing a little heavy. Okay, what's this going to happen? And then all of a sudden the train leaves the station and it's all the way to the top and then like that. Who are the people in here who put their hands up when you go on roller coasters? I don't get you people. Like, I, what, what is that? I'm, I'm the guy that when the camera takes your picture, I'm like this. And then there's those reading newspapers. You ever seen those? Those are hilarious. So anyway, we'll crest the top and we'll be like, woo, and hit some curves and then do some loops and whatever. And then you're going to come back to the station. You're going to roll in. It's going to go. And you're going to go, I don't feel so good. And then you're going to look up and go, let's do that again. <laughs> so just a little disclaimer on what it's like listening to me speak. I'll get there. Might be some loops. There might be some curves, but we will eventually get there, okay? Uh, I want to open quickly with a passage from Scripture to frame what it's going to be like looking at these topics. In Luke chapter 12, and this is a passage, Luke chapter 12, I've interacted with in my life so many different ways. Uh, but there's a moment where Jesus is speaking to crowds. And he is, uh, he kind of chastises them in a sense. This is in Luke uh, 12, 54. It says, then Jesus turned to the crowd and he said, 
When you see the clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, here comes a shower. And you are right. When the south wind blows, you say, today will be a scorcher, and it is. You fools, you know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. I'm not sharing that with you as a directive toward you. I think it is a very interesting perspective of Jesus to these people that what is going on around you, you're, you're not really in, in clue or in tune with what is happening. You don't see what's taking place in our times. For me, that passage really frames what I'm going to communicate with you today and going forward, but particularly today. I'm going to be talking to you about the way our culture is functioning and why I believe, based on the research that I've done, my own personal lived experience with mental health struggle, that this is actually going on. And we need to be in a position of understanding. We need to be taking a posture of, of listening and equipping ourselves to know how to move into the lives of other people and have conversations with them about the dynamics that are taking place for them. Because the reality is, most of the time, they don't even know what's going on for them. But they feel it. Okay? So as we get in here, I want to read to you this disclaimer first about mental health. Uh, mental health is a very complex issue and one that is, must be handled with great respect and sensitivity. And that is what I'm seeking to do in doing this. My approach is a cultural one. It is not clinical or scholastic, though I may reference terminology or information from those viewpoints. My perspective is focused on the effects of our moment in time. It is a perspective that is informed by lived experience with mental health conditions and over a decade's worth of personal research. It's driven by cultural observations and interactions in the for-profit and non-profit sectors, world-class athletics, and entertainment. Though I may paint a specific portrait and speculate about current epidemics, it is not done in effort to dismiss or devalue other perspectives on mental health. My goal is to be helpful and to thoughtfully add to this critical conversation. That's my goal here. I do not want to devalue, dismiss other things. There are so many things to talk about here. What I do want to present to you is a specific viewpoint to consider as a factor that's contributing to what's happening in our culture and our world to people, maybe even to you. So I want to start this by sharing with you my story to give context through the form of this blue toolbox. Okay, here's the thing. Every one of us gets one of these in life. It goes everywhere with you. So does mine, as you can see. Right? It's here today. This is my toolbox. It's not your toolbox. This toolbox represents the kind of tools that you acquire to live all of life. This is mine, not yours. Don't touch it. We'll have issues. Okay? Yours might be green, fluorescent yellow, camouflage pink. I don't know. But you got one. Mine's named the Companion. You can see it on there. It's funny, I've had this toolbox forever, and then all of a sudden, as I was thinking about how do I tell my story, Lord, through all of this, it, it came together in this way. So now this toolbox travels with me everywhere. So you get one of these, and I get one, and at some point in your life, you're going to have to open this toolbox and figure out, do I have all the necessary tools to live all of life? The tools you gain in life are things that come to you from maybe your family growing up, maybe through great mentors, through your church. We acquire tools that help us to meet the demands of reality as we're living life. So at some point, you have to open that box and find out, do I have what's in there to live all of life? 
I had to do that at about 23 years old. That was the point that I would say that I began to search my toolbox to see what I had. And here's the equivalent of what I had, a weak set of tools from Home Depot. I had an old rusted out hammer that you could hammer some things with, some string. I mean, I guess if you're MacGyver, if you're MacGyver, you could pretty much do anything you want with both of these things right here. But for me, it wasn't working. I had a paint stick, some pliers, craft scissors that are rusted out. I don't even know if you can cut anything with these anymore. I haven't really tried. A weak flimsy tape measure from Home Depot. You ever tried to measure something with something like this? Doesn't work very well. Flashlight that doesn't work. A Phillips head screwdriver. There's flathead screwdrivers. So you see where this is going, right? I can unscrew some things, but not all things. Problematic. And a Sharpie. And there's a rock that's made its way in here. I don't know how that got in there. Anyway, this is what the equivalent of like what I had in my toolbox. Now, at 23, I had to search my toolbox to see if I had what I needed, and this is what I had. I had a, a deficit in my tools. The issue with this is life is like a high-level remodel. It's not like new, easy construction. Are you with me? Life can be hard. If you show up to do remodel work with this set of tools, how's that going to go for you? Not good. You guys are you're really smart. And I, so that's what happened to me. I show up to live all of my life, and I got this weak set of tools, and life is like a high-level remodel, and I'm wrestling through all this, and the reality was that showed up, high-level remodel, weak tools, frustration. And the way that showed up for me was anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation throughout my 20s. Now, here's the thing. I came to know Jesus at 13. Some people would say, hey, those things can't coexist. You can't know Jesus and struggle with suicide. These are not bad people that say this. They're just wrong. The scripture, Job himself, <laughs> go read Job, says he wanted to die. Now, suicide is a very sensitive issue, and I am not making light of it. But the fact is, if we really want to deal rightly with these things, we have to talk about them in a way that allows us to be able to translate to our culture and address them specifically. What was going on for me in my life at that time? I'm 23. I'm chasing a professional career in golf. I was a competitive athlete. Maybe can't tell that now, but I was. And I was also, I came from a home that was really difficult where both my parents had affairs and they're still together today. Don't ask me how that all works, uh, but it is the truth. And all of the emotional nurture that I needed to get from age 12 to 21, I did not receive. I did not know how to grow up and function as an adult in life, meet the demands of reality and all the responsibilities and pressures that were being placed upon me. I did not know how to do that. And it showed up as anxiety, depression, and eventually suicidal ideation. Then there came a point through this process, this is a long period, seven to ten years, where God kind of whispered to me and said, hey, go back in your toolbox. There are two tools I've placed there that you don't know are there. And as I, beyond, as I began to investigate again, I found these two things, and they became the source, the solution, and the direction to my recovery, and it was these. Love and people. That God's love translated through his people and their care for my life became like this in my life. 
Anybody who does high-level remodel knows that this gets the job done. And it can cut through anything. God's love and his people became like this in my life. Now I was equipped with something that I could use to make it through this life, through his guidance and his direction. And so you may, I hope you connect with that story and that that, that is uh, very clear to you as to how this whole thing functions. But the reality is we're all facing that. Every one of us has to, to show up and deal with reality and be equipped to do that. And so a passage that became very precious to me on the back end of this is Romans 5, chapter 5, 2 through 5. And it says, because of our faith in Christ Jesus has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. What I needed was the strengthening of my character like steel beams in a skyscraper. I didn't have everything I needed. But here's the thing. The scriptures give us great patterning for how to develop this kind of character in our life, and yet we don't often approach it that way. We approach it very mystically and not practically. And our character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. That strengthening of our character produces hope. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When you think about the Holy Spirit in here, have you ever understood that when you were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, what came to live in you was the love of God? Strategically and functionally, the love of God came in to, to live in you to transform you from the inside out to become a more loving person. That's what following Jesus is about. We can make it about all kinds of other things. You want to be a loving person? Follow Jesus. You don't want to be a loving person? Don't follow Jesus. Do something else. That is, the, that is how the Holy Spirit serves us from the inside out. And so this became critical to me, and I'm going to come back to this passage. We're going to do this rapidly, okay? So if you wanted to give a name to my talk, this is what it would be. Sledding with a serial killer. How to find hope in a culture that's killing us. This is a project I've been working on for several years. I had to put it on pause because of the pandemic and whatever. But the fact is, people are white-knuckling through life trying to find happiness. They're like, uh, just hoping that they will find some level of happiness. And the way in which the culture is communicating to us to do that is very threatening to their lives. Mostly this is showing up for the next generation, so I want to speak to it through that lens. I want to speak to it through the lens of the next generation. This is statistics from Pew Research that tells us what they're struggling with the most. At the top, anxiety and depression, they are mostly concerned with that. All of them are facing it. And people, if they want to blame something, they'll often blame this. They're going to blame the rectangles. It's those dang smartphones and tablets and everything and gaming that they're doing. If they would just get off their phones, you know, they'd all be better. That is super short-sighted. I would say the smartphones are having an effect, but the fact of the matter is, it's what's going on inside the smartphones, and that's what I want to bring to light today and the way in which that's functioning. There is a book by a gal, um, San Diego State professor named Jean Twenge, and this book is a great book, but she does kind of go on to suggest that the smartphones have like the greatest impact, and I just think, well, there's got to be more to it than that, and that was my challenge and my struggle as the, I saw the epidemics increasing, stress, anxiety, suicide, all this stuff increasing, I was going, what is causing this? And I couldn't connect the dots. 
And I don't think it's actually just the smartphones. There's a professor from University of Texas. He says, uh, his name's Robert Crosno. He's the head of uh, adolescent development. And he says, there really isn't data that shows a strong connection between these two things. I think there's an increase in mental health issues. It is something real, and we need to be concerned about it. But until we know exactly what's causing it, I don't think it's so easy for us to put the blame on any one thing. Crosno says, to explain the phenomenon, you have to look at our entire context and the historic moment we're living in. That's where I'm coming from. I think we are living in a time of great uncertainty where people are unsure about the future of the country, but their own futures, he says, and that is anxiety-provoking for anybody, but it's especially true for young people whose whole future is ahead of them. So I could try to describe to you what I think is happening, but I'd rather invite someone I greatly admire into the room to do that for us, because he's way better at it. Watch this. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently. A bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. And then me, myself, right? And then I, and then I myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I, because I was talking about myself, and then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. <laughs> oh, well, didn't mean to waste everybody's time. <laughs> Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. <laughs> my story ain't nothing. Maybe it wasn't, because I made the mistake of trying to tell a story about having only two wisdom teeth pulled, and I learned a lesson. Don't ever try to tell a two wisdom tooth story, because you ain't going nowhere. The four wisdom teeth people are going to parachute in and cut you off at the pass. Halt! Halt with your two wisdom tooth tail! You will never complete one, trust me. I'm trying to tell my story. You know, I had some wisdom teeth pulled. I had, um... I had two, but I had four pulled. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, five, no, nine. I had nine wisdom teeth pulled. All of mine were impacted. They were all coming upside down. The roots were wrapped around my tongue, coming out my nose. They were tusks. I was a warthog. No anesthesia. They pulled them out with pliers. I was eating corn in the cob that afternoon. Pin the blue ribbon upon his chest. That knocks the socks off of my wisdom tooth tail. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! You, me! You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition people get something out of that? That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can be anybody's story whenever they want. 
They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. Let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business all. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check on. You know, driving in the autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich. You know, get a Swiss account there. I'm going to check it. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways in Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know, you know that Pacific Rim company. I'm going to try to take that over. And global enterprise. I walked on the moon. <laughs> well, you have the floor, Moonwalker. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I could try to describe in my own words to you what it's like to live in a society full of competition on every front at all times, I could never do it as good as Brian Regan. <laughs> Does that make sense to you there? If people were to stop me in the hall and say, hey, what do you think's causing it, Ben? What do you think is causing the epidemics? Now, I'm one guy, okay? Most people know no clue who I am, so why does it matter what I think? Well, I've done a lot of research on this. Here's what I would say. What I think is causing the current increases in the epidemics in our culture is competitive individualism with no meaning in morality. The competitive ethos that has fused itself and the pressure that has come into life in an individualistic society where people are chasing everything and they are, it's all about them with unpredictability, no morality, no meaning, no standards underneath to support them, no guidance, no direction. This is a cultural message. That's not the truth for all of us in here. You have followers, you're followers of Jesus and we have the scriptures. We have a foundation that we live on that creates stability for us. But people out in the world, that is not what they're feeling. My client base that I work with, a lot of them young people, the one word they use when they come in and talk to me, I say, tell me what's going on in your life. They're like, man, I just feel a lot of pressure. Just pressure. I'm like, well, where's it coming from? And they're like, I don't exactly know. But I just feel a lot of pressure. Things have changed, and we live in a very, very different society today. This is kind of how it goes. This is uh, Edward Hall's model of iceberg model. When you look at culture, you see just the tip of the iceberg, and it normally shows up in behavior, but it's driven by so much more beneath the surface. You know the Titanic, right? It hit an iceberg that was gigantic under the surface, but all you could see was that little top. And there's so much functioning beneath the surface for people today in their lives that's manifesting in their behaviors, and I think that manifestation for many is a, a great struggle with their mental health, with their stability mentally. I found this book in my research, and there was a period of, in my life when uh, after I was exiting my struggle with anxiety, depression, kind of around 30, I started, I'm like, happiness is a good thing. Do I have any other fans of happiness in here? Anybody fans of happiness? It's nice. Not enough of you are fans of happiness in here. I'm hoping that I'm going to make some more fans of happiness today. I think happiness in reality for many people is like trying to chase an unpredictable dog. I think that's what it is. Like they, there's this, and it's not a dog like I have. I have a toy golden doodle. Her name is Maisie. Maisie's the cutest dog ever. She's 11 pounds. She forgot to grow. And yet 
She is the most predictable, consistent dog ever. You can knock her upside the head. She'll still lick you. She'll walk down the green belt and look at everybody. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? That's how golden doodles are, right? I'm not talking about a golden doodle. I'm talking about a chihuahua. For many people, trying to find happiness is like trying to train a chihuahua. Come here, happiness. Come here, come here. That's good girl happiness. Pat happiness. Shake happiness. And then, boom, she's gone. She darts across the yard. And now you're chasing happiness across the yard like a fool. As she's off after a squirrel, and you finally catch up because you don't want her getting into a boxing match with a squirrel that's as big as a cat. You finally get over there. Happiness, are you okay? And you reach down to pick her up, and she goes, bites your finger off. I feel like that's what happiness is like for people. Like this unpredictable thing, this elusive thing that they're, every once in a while it's there, it seems to be functioning right, and the next thing it's gone. So I read so much on happiness after my struggles because I think this is something I probably should research. Is it worth pursuing? Is it worth knowing about? This was a book I found, The Happiness Industry by William Davies. Now, if you're into like competitive economics and stuff like that, read this book. But what he says in this book essentially is this. He says, the competitive economics in the United States and UK post-World War II doubled down on a couple things, data and metrics and the competitive ethos. They felt like we needed more of that in our culture. He gets to the middle of the book, there's a chapter titled The Crisis of Authority. And in that chapter, he talks about as competitive ethos was being doubled down on it caused a condition that we've never seen in our society. There's a direct correlation between increased competition and depression. First antidepressant Prozac was re released in, I think, 1988. So we saw these massive increases in depression as this competitive ethos was propelling itself. Here's the thing, people. This is as common and familiar to us as Chevy and apple pie. This is what we do in America. So... Being able to question it can sometimes feel, or bring it up as an issue, can sometimes feel like, I don't get where you're going. So I exited from this book. I read everything about it, and I thought about my co-founder of my institute. His name's Kent. He had stepped down as a lead pastor of a megachurch in Phoenix having suicidal ideation in 2016. So I went to have a meeting with him. I'm like, hey, Kent, I think, I think this was part of your story. I think the competition of the pastor caused some of this for you. Pastoring is not competitive, is it? Churches don't compete with one another, do they? He's like, he looks at me and goes, oh, totally. He goes, and then he goes, well, what about you? I'm like, well, what about me? He goes, well, weren't you a professional athlete? And I'm like, well, yeah, well, what does that have to do with it? And I was like, I had never considered the ebbing and flowing of regular stress and anxiety in my life around high-level competition as ever having caused my mental health struggle. I mostly gave 80% of it to family of origin and not getting what I needed. The reality is now I give 80% of it to ebbing and flowing competition in my life and 20% to not having the tools to deal with it. It's flipped for me. So we're going to do this through the lens of these guys, the four horsemen of competitive society. I'm going to describe to you this is what we're facing in our culture. I want you to try this on and think about it a little bit. So we're going to do this rapidly. The four horsemen of competitive society. Economic, academic, consumeristic, and social horsemen. The first is this, the economic horsemen. This is a competition in your life for power, playing itself out in markets, politics, and industry. I can describe this at length. You know, this is like Apple competing with Amazon, Amazon competing with Facebook, Facebook competing with 
whoever they want to themselves, Meta, I guess. But this constant, and there's no competition in politics. I'm not even going to go there. But you notice, anybody running for the presidency in the last two weeks of their campaign, what becomes the most critical issue to them? It's not abortion. It's not education. It's not immigration. What is it? The economy. Because that is the the condition that propels everything globally. If that collapses, it all collapses. To be known as a great president, how did the economy do under your leadership? Next, academic. This is a competition for ideas and a future playing itself out in schools and universities. This is not about grades. This is about what ideas get accepted in culture and society. A battle for ideas happening inside those institutions that inform media, marketing, and advertising. When we send a lot of kids off to schools and they find themselves right in the middle of this competition for these ideas, can I actually believe some things that that professor would never teach, that he disagrees with, or am I just going to get canceled? Cancel culture is a very direct form of competition. My idea counts, yours doesn't. Next, consumeristic, a competition for our time playing itself out in our wallets and on our weeknights and weekends. So this is how we spend our time and money. I'm going to do this through the lens of professionalization of youth sports. You can't play a sport today like I did when I was a kid. When I played baseball, I'd have one practice a week, one game on Saturday. I'd go there. I'd play my game. After the game was over, I'd go to concessions. I'd get nasty, cheesy nachos. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? Big league chew. I'd go to the bleachers with my friends, watch another game, spitting sunflower seeds. Then I'd get up when it was over. I'd go home, cut the grass, and ride my bike. That is not youth sports today, people. Anybody understand? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, you play baseball as a kid, it's like, they got these slick uniforms now, and they're six. Name on the back, stick a microphone in their face, and they go, we're like family out there. (laughs) Pitching coach, hitting coach, agility coach, sports psychologist, backpacks and bats and this, and they're 24 hours, seven days a week, 365, thousands of dollars, traveling the country, and they're six years old. By the way, if you have an athlete, specialization is bad for your kid. The actual surgery age, average surgery for Tommy John surgery in baseball now is 17. What that means, they blow their arm out before they ever get to college. It's big business, folks, and the worst are the parents. Dear mom and dad, thanks for screaming at the umpires and other parents the entire game. You're the best. Please remember, these are kids, this is a game, parents should cheer for everyone, the referees are human, you and your child do not play for the Blackhawks. What you don't see in the small writing there is it says, if you struggle to understand this, call the ICE department, we'd be happy to explain it to you. Last competition, and this is what I think is happening inside the smartphones, a competition for who's happiest and most influential playing itself out in non-reality, social media and gaming, and it's a game nobody wins. So four layers of competition driven by also what I call the competitive cocktail. 
These are things happening beneath the surface, kind of like an engine running, four things, ambition, competition, humanism, and relativism. Ambition is the drive that people have, this thing that they feel like they have to chase everything, and it's inside this condition of competition. As I was doing my research, I kept running across a term, neoliberalism, in the stuff that I was reading. That's not a political term, it's an economic term for the competitive free markets of the West. That condition in competition is functioning beneath the surface. Humanism, people are the sole authority of all things in their life. Nothing bigger. They're making all their decisions for themselves based on their emotions. Bad recipe. Recipe for disaster. We all know it. And relativism, absence of morality and ethics. Does this sound like our culture? Okay, we're going to keep going. So this is what it feels like to be in the next generation today. Walls of pressure and competition squeezing in. And you're nothing but a number, data and metrics. There's no intrinsic value anymore. There's no worth and value ascribed to you because you're made in the image of God and you live in the kingdom of God or something like that. Even just country or community, it's all individualistic. And these walls are closing in. This is what a quote from the happiness industry, American psychologic, uh, psychologist Tim Kasser has revealed that aspirational values oriented around money, status, and power are linked to a higher risk of depression and lower sense of self-actualization. Whenever we measure our self-worth relative to others, as all competitions force us to do, we risk losing our sense of self-worth altogether. So when it all connected for me, it came through this man. He's a sociologist in the late 1800s named Emile Durkheim. He wrote a book called Le Suicide. In that book, he gave four typologies of suicide. First, egoistic suicide. Anybody ever heard of the show 13 Reasons Why? Please don't watch it. Here's the reason why that show is bad. It weaponizes suicide against other people. That would be egoistic suicide. I'm going to kill myself because of this, and I'm taking it out on everybody else. The second typology Durkheim gave was altruistic suicide, which is for the good that I take my life. The third was fatalistic suicide, which I think we saw a lot of in the pandemic, just oppression, it's never going to get any better, and I'm going to die. The fourth was a condition that he actually coined called anomic suicide. He coined the term anime, which means a sense of aimlessness or normlessness in society, like I have no direction. And as a, as a result, people end up dying, and this is how it's defined. Durkheim linked this type of suicide to disillusionment and disappointment resulting from a condition where social and moral norms are confused, unclear, or simply not present. I don't know. That's not our culture. He coined the sociological term anime, meaning a sense of aimlessness or despair and social disconnection that arises from the inability to reasonably expect life to be predictable. In this kind of society, individuals lack a sense of social regulation and feel unguided in the choices they have to make. He also believed the lack of norms led to deviant behavior. <laughs> Anime is propelled by periods of rapid social, economic, political, and technological change that leads to an inability to regulate emotion. This is really important. Suicide happens in a two-day to two-week period of emotional deregulation. You want to prevent suicide? Teach people to emotionally regulate. We have a culture that produces emotional deregulation. In that kind of culture, as an expression of suffering, people begin taking their lives. This is what I think it feels like to be someone growing up in our culture today. This is uh, Alex Honnold, 
There's a documentary called Free Solo. He is a professional free climber. He also climbs those ropes from time to time. Growing up in culture today as a young person, without any meaning and morality, no direction, put him up 100 feet on El Capitan. No ropes, no anchors, no path to the top, no guide. Figure it out for yourself. What's the first emotion they're going to feel? Fear. Second, when they go to reach for a hold, if they even know to reach for a hold, anxiety. Wonder why anxiety is propelling itself so much in our culture? The single greatest cause of anxiety is unpredictability. I'm going to go into more and more into that next week. But this, I think, is what it's like to be a young person in our culture today. This is what they actually need. They need things to come into their life to push out those walls of pressure and competition that help them to feel valued, that gives them worth and value, where they feel guided and supported. Church is a great place for that. That's why I believe if we want to hit the mental health crisis hard in our culture, let's just unify the church and go, we're going to take this one. We're going to take this one. Everybody else, you doctors and whatever, great. Say what you need to say. We got this. And you start loving people and you start caring for them and you start providing stability and support in their life, and they start to feel, what is the solution? Because the question is, what is a solution to this? Where does it exist? I mean, for a lot of us, it can feel like this, trying to find something valuable in the Pacific garbage patch. Is there anything of value in here? You guys familiar with what this is, a big collection of trash in the ocean? Well, here's what we have. We have the greatest hope that has ever existed in the history of mankind. And our ability to take that and translate that to people and give it to them is an amazing solution. And it comes to us in every form in life. See, the thing about hope is this. Hope functions structurally in your life. It is actually something you manage. Most people think it's very, you know, kind of elusive or like, well, when they, someone dies by suicide, they say, well, what happened to that person? They, well, they lost hope. Well, what is it that they lost? Well, what they lost was their outlook on life. The out, your outlook on life is your hope. Well, Jesus gave us a great commandment to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. This is called the hope tanks. We manage hope in our life related to the great command, in my opinion. Becoming emotionally healthy in our heart relationally healthy in our soul, intellectually healthy in our mind, and vocationally healthy in our strength. When we do that well in relationship with others, love and people, love is the fuel in those tanks, by the way. It's the thing that fills those tanks. To, to see love working in every dimension of your life, helping you, propelling your hope. When that happens, man, you can cruise through this world. Nothing's going to bother you. But if one of those tanks deplete and you become hopeless, you're at risk. So as I conclude here, back to that passage, for me, what I began to realize, and this is at the bottom here, reading this again, developing endurance, endurance developing strength of character, those tanks I just showed you is how those things are formed in our lives. That's what we actually need. We need the character structuring necessary to meet the demands of reality and to deal with it. And that strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope does not lead to disappointment. So many things that people are putting their hope in in this world today, communicated to the by them culture, leads them to disappointment. It actually doesn't bring real functioning hope in their life. It's what we have. And that hope 
comes to us through the love of God and how he loves us, and he's given that to us as a deposit inside of us through his spirit. So this is a cultural environmental factor, factor that I think is happening in our world, this level of competition and how it's affecting people. And I wanted to frame the next two weeks by sharing that with you and suggesting that, that maybe we need to be looking at this more and considering this as a cause to what's going on in our society. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. And Father, we come to you through the powerful name of Jesus, and we just ask that the, the clarity that we need and the wisdom that we need to help us navigate this well would become true of us, that you would serve us in that way, that you would help us to be equipped so that we can move out into culture to help those who are struggling. But Lord, we also ask that it would equip us to live with great stability and rest in the midst of immense chaos in our world. Jesus, the way of following you is a way of rest. And I pray that we would ask questions about our lives and the way things are functioning for us, that maybe we need to reject the way that the culture is pushing in, the pressure and the competition, the way it's squeezing in on us, and maybe we need to push back on it and push back on it with rest the way that you have encouraged us to live. Lord, give us what we need to grow and develop and to transform so that we can navigate these things, these pressures of life, and be an encouragement to us in the, in the moments when we need you throughout our days to hear your voice, to draw close to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this message from River Valley Church. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by it? Make sure to share it with them this week. Again, for more content from us, please check out our website at rivervalleyboise.com.